Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Unmasked. I am your host, Neil Getzlow. This is episode number 24. Every week, I just keep getting amazed that uh, these numbers keep going up, and it's awesome. And I, and I appreciate all of you coming along on this journey with me. I hope you had a great week. And wherever you are, just hope that um, you, you continue to enjoy these episodes, that you get encouragement, and that you see what God is doing in, in everybody's lives is ordinary people that are just, that are doing some amazing things through the power of God. And we've got yet another awesome testimony to share with you today. And uh, this is a gentleman that, that I've heard live share his story a couple of times uh, at my church. And uh, so it was such an honor to be able to talk to him, uh, the Reverend Jimmy Bratchert. And he has been, as he describes it, preaching the gospel and playing the blues, ministering in churches and non-church venues. He's been at um, a bar in downtown Kansas City. He's been in clubs. He's been at music festivals, motorcycle rallies, and he's been in so many prisons doing prison ministry. And it's had such a great impact there across the U.S. In the, and the U.K. since the year 2000. He also has two unbelievable testimonies. The first one that he'll share is talking about his his um, his first and second marriage to his wife Sherry, uh, married twice, but um, got back together when the preacher at the small church that they went to said, "I'm going to only marry you if you promise to put your faith in Jesus," and he did, and their marriage has blossomed ever since. And then he talks about finding his daughter, a daughter that he never thought he would see again. And theirs is really just this decade-long journey that is rooted in the pain of abandonment. Um, and so, by the grace of God, though, that story ends in love, forgiveness, and redemption. Now, today, if you go to his website, you're going to find books, you're going to find albums, you're going to find uh, barbecue dry rub that he has. Believe it or not, this guy is truly awesome, and he is definitely a man of God, and I'm so honored to bring this journey to you. This uh, I hope you find this an encouraging testimony because it, it shows that, you know, he's, he's displaying the true power of God's ability to use all of us to spread the gospel. All right, get ready for episode number 24 of Unmasked with the Reverend Jimmy Bratchard. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on Unmasked this week. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Have you been uh, on the road a lot this summer? Or I guess it will, I guess it is by the time the show comes out, the summer will be halfway over probably. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm on the road constantly. Good, good. Well, uh, you know, I've heard your testimony a couple times at, at the Rock of KC, the, the, the church that, um, that I go to. I know that you frequent as well when you're in town. Right. And so um, I want to start with, because you've got, you know, the, the first time I heard you was, was talking about how you um, discovered your daughter, Jessica. Right. But I want to go, but I want to go back and kind of start with, with you and Sherry and talk about that journey and how, and how you guys, guys found each other and then how, how you found Jesus in the middle of everything that was going on. Okay. Well, we can do that. We actually have a book um, that we've written about that. And the book is titled Granny Paid for Our Divorce. Um, 
Sherry and I met um, at a Black Sabbath concert, which that's awesome. To put that in perspective, was the first their first American tour. Wow! Um, and uh, we uh, fell into lust, and uh, she got pregnant. And uh, with our son, Jason, and six months into the marriage, uh, the picture on the front of the book is us at 19 years old uh, at my aunt's house. We had a makeshift wedding shower for us. And uh, and uh, so we call that time uh, the marriage made in hell because it was absolutely horrible. I can say hell, it's in the Bible. Um, yeah, that's legal. Yeah. And uh, so we uh, we fought constantly. It, we were both uh, very selfish and immature. We had no upbringings whatsoever as far as how we conducted our, our lives or morals or anything else like that. Can you hear that TV in the background or is that? Uh, no. No, you're good. All right. And... Uh, Sorry about the interruption there. You, you can edit that out, Ben. Um, but um, it was one of those deals where we, you know, I I was raised in a family that never fought. Uh, I never heard my parents have an argument ever. Uh, my parents, specifically my mother, uh, she subscribed to the pop culture, psychological history, our theme of the day for raising children from Dr. Spock, which was never discipline them. So I grew, grew up completely undisciplined and uh, to the point where they took us to church until I was about five years old. They left me at a kid's thing after church one Sunday to which I decided I didn't want to go. So I walked home. And when I got home, I announced to the family that we would not be going to church anymore. And we didn't. And so, you know, I was raised that way. At 13, I got put on probation for stealing uh, wheels and tires off a car that was on a train, parked on a train. And Clay County, Missouri, put me on probation. I had three stipulations to my probation. Number one, I couldn't hang out with the guys I hung out with that did the crime with. Number two, I had to go to school because I didn't. And number three, I had to go to church. And you had to go to church? I had to go to church. Yeah. Oh, Clay County, Missouri mandated that I had to go to church. And uh, so put that in the ACLU pipe and smoke it. Um, uh, <laughs> And so I went to a little Baptist church in our, in our community, and I sat as close to the door and as far away from the preacher as possible, but I heard the, the gospel and every, every Sunday for three months, and I loved it, and I wanted to respond, but I was afraid of what my friends would think, and so I didn't. And from that point forward, shortly after that, I discovered uh, drugs and alcohol and started using. And so by the time I met Sherry, uh, I tell people I had respect for two things in my life. And that was JB Rare Scotch and heroin. And I would not 
you know, that was, those were the only things that I knew that if I indulged in them, like I wanted to, I would die. And so I didn't, but Sherry and I, uh, we met, went on a, a big bend of, uh, of taking barbiturates and spending our time that way. And, uh, Jason, you know, of course she got pregnant that stopped. Jason came along and, uh, we were just glad that he was all there, uh, because of the abuse that we put our bodies through and three years into the marriage, we got in a fight one night that I lost. And, uh, after, you know, three days later, after having reconstructive surgery on my face, uh, cause Sherry had on hiking boots and got in a good kick right square in my face. Um, See, and when I look at Sherry, I would not, I could not think that uh, oh, yeah. She, yeah. she'd have that boot going. Yeah, she did. And, um, my grandmother came to visit and she saw me after surgery with black eyes and packs in my head and, uh, all of those things. And she looked at me and she said, baby, I will give you the money if you just get a divorce. And so granny paid for our divorce. We got a divorce. We went all the way through the legal process uh, child support, custody, all of those things. And, um, and that was the end of that. So I continued uh, at that time, uh, my lifestyle party and, uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, uh, and really just, uh, just existed from, you know, from that in that environment. And about nine months into our divorce, after it was final, uh, all of a sudden, you know, it, it was so bad during our divorce that whenever I wanted to see Jason, my son, Sherry, we, Sherry would have to take him to a neutral place and leave him and leave. And then I would come and pick him up because if we were together at all, it would be, you know, we would go right back into fighting and uh, not physically so much, but just abusively with each other verbally. And so uh, nine months into our divorce, all of a sudden we started uh, communicating with each other again. And, uh, and it was crazy and it made no sense. And of course we couldn't tell my grandmother cause she'd wanted a refund. Uh, but we, uh, <clears throat> we, we, you know, started seeing each other from time to time. And one night we said, let's get married again. And that was about as insane a proposal as anybody could ever make. And so we snuck around. Of course, we couldn't tell our friends. We couldn't tell our family. Oh, in the meantime, you know, let me just kind of stop here. In the meantime, my sister Patsy had come to Jesus and she started praying for us. In fact, in the church, um, that she attended started praying for us and Sherry was in a grocery store and, um, as a single mother and devastated. And there was another housewife in the grocery store that saw her that knew my sister and went up to her and said, you know, I've been thinking about you and I would like to invite you to come to church. And, Reluctantly, Sherry accepted, and she went to this little church up in Caldwell County, Missouri at that time. It was the smallest populated county in the state, 
uh, near Hamilton, Missouri, the hometown of J.C. Penny. And, hey, how about that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, so she, she went to this little church out in the middle of nowhere. And the first person she met there was her drug dealer. And her drug dealer had come, had came to Jesus and came to faith in Christ. And, and so when we started talking about getting married and I, I went to church there one time I had been, I had a date with Sherry on a Saturday night and I decided that I wasn't going to show up. So I took a bunch of amphetamines and drank all night and about two o'clock in the morning, I thought it'd be a good idea to go to her house. Not a good idea. Yeah. No. And uh, the only way in, and my car broke down on the way there. The only way that she would let me, so I had to walk in the rain to get to her house. And the only way she would let me in was I promised to go to church with her the next day. And so I figured that, you know, be, oh, it's an hour, you know, it's an hour and a half, maybe, you know, something like that. No, this was all day, all night church meeting, you know, we used to call the, the Southern gospel people said it was a, it was an all day meeting with dinner on the grounds. And that's what it was. And, um, and I was, you know, again, that tug on my heart of the gospel, the goodness of God, the love of God, all of those things, uh, were there and present. So when we got our marriage license, I said, okay, if we're going to do this, I want that preacher to marry us. And so unannounced on a Sunday night, we went to this little church in Northwest Missouri, which, you know, you can't make this up. The name of the church was God Sheep Shed. And um, I thought, no, I actually, I saw that in, in the book and I thought, yeah. that can't be real. Yeah, it's real. <laughs> and their marketing line was God Sheep Shed, where all the big sheep and the little lambs get fed. Nice. And uh and so we showed up and I went up to the pastor and showed him my marriage license and said, we want to get married tonight. And he looked at me and looked at Sherry and he said, well, I'll tell you what, I won't join this mess together. She said, she's trying to serve the Lord. You're an alcoholic drug addict and I'm not going to join that mess together. And I'm like, okay. He gave me a straight answer. And so we sat down, going to, you know, go to church. And uh, a few minutes later, he came back and he said, I tell you what, I'm going to marry you tonight, but you're going to receive Jesus. And he said, are you ready for that? And my faith response to God was, hey, man, I'm here. And uh, so he, you know, I tell you, he didn't explain it to me. He didn't show me scriptures, nothing. He was about a foot taller than me. And I was afraid of him. So I said, yes. And so after church, they had this little, you know, had a guy come up and sing a song and I don't even remember what that was. And uh, I'm sitting there on the front row thinking, you know, nothing changes. My life is not, I, I was blind drunk the day before. Um, my life doesn't change. Nothing changes. And after church had this little ceremony and one of the things that he kind of had probed me about, he says, okay, we're going to come up. And so I want to pray over you. Is that all right? And I said, yeah, you know, church prayer. I mean, I, I'm good with that. 
He goes, I want you to get down on your knees. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, that's fine. And so we went into the ceremony. Uh, we got down on our knees. I believed on Jesus. Um, and we got up from there completely different people. Um, my, I had a, you know, so we, we literally got up from there completely different. And how old were you at that time? I was 22. Okay. And so it's been, a, this has been a minute ago because I'm 68. <laughs> so, uh, but so we went down to their house, which was near the church to, to sign our marriage license. And the pastor's wife is a sweet lady from middle Tennessee with a real thick Southern accent. And she prophesied to me and she didn't frame it as such. You know, she didn't say, I have a word from God for you. We were, we were having a conversation and what she said struck me and it struck me in such a way that I had to agree with it and say yes to it. And she just looked at me with this thick Southern accent. And she said, Jimmy, now you're going to be in church all the time, aren't you? And I heard the hallelujah chorus and angels singing. And I thought, you know, I'm all messed up and I'm coming here and I am getting help. I don't know what just happened, but yes. And so that's from there on, we started framing our life that way. But I started a, I started a job the next day, washing cars for a Ford dealer in Kansas city, Kansas. And uh, so I showed up eight o'clock, went to work 10 o'clock break guy next guy working right next to me comes up and he says, Hey man, I got some drugs out in the car. If you want to get high. And I just kind of stared at him. And finally I said, you know, I found something better than that. Mm. And that was, you know, that was the end of our conversation. That was it. That's a and, good answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, that was my, my, my Bible school theological answer. You know, I mean, I didn't have any experience in any of these things, but I was playing in a band. So that night I went right back into the rehearsal room and there was drugs and alcohol and all the things that go along with that sex, drugs, and rock and roll going on. And all of a sudden I didn't desire it. Um, it was crazy. It was like, I, I didn't, didn't want it. And that's, that was, that's completely alien foreign from my nature and so i just didn't didn't desire it i didn't have those desires anymore they were gone and um the next monday when i got to work the guy working next to me first break comes over and he goes you remember last week when you told me you know i said i had some drugs and you told me you found something better than that i said yeah he goes it's crazy, but I knew I know what you meant. And so I went to church last night, gave my life to Jesus. That's and, uh, and so it's like, so anyway, so we, yeah, that's cool. we from there, you know, Jason was, um, he was about three, three years old and, uh, 10 months later, you know, we, well, nine months later we moved. Well, no, it would have been 11 months later. We moved to Caldwell County, Missouri, outside of Hamilton, our daughter, Amanda, was uh, a month old. We moved into a house that uh, had no heat. I mean, it didn't have a heating element in it. Um, 
I went to town and bought a $29 King heater, which if you know what that is, that's a, that's a sheet metal wood stove. And my pastor sold me a chainsaw that weighed 20 pounds. And I had no idea what uh, cutting wood was about, but uh, we planted ourselves uh, there in that church. We stayed there for 16 years. Um, the church went through some pretty dramatic changes theologically that weren't healthy. Um, but I learned, I learned how to be a man there because I had no idea what that was. I learned worth at work ethic there, um, how to work, how to do job, how to be on time, how to be faithful, all of those things. Uh, Sherry, they had a small Christian school there and Sherry taught as a full-time volunteer, uh, for 12 years. I led worship there for eight years, um, and just did anything that I could find to do to help people say, you know, how, when did you, when were you called by God into ministry? And my response has always been, well, from the moment I first met the Lord, I don't ever remember a time that I didn't want to serve him or do something for him. And so, you know, my, my story with that is, is that, you know, we got saved on December 19th. So the first weekend after Christmas, they were having a work day. The men were having a work day at the church and they heated the church with wood. And so we were cutting wood. And so I show up, I'm ready to serve the Lord, man. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do something for God. And, uh, I show up and these are, these are farm people, you know, these are farmers. And, uh, I show up and I walk up to some old farmer and I said, I'm here to work. Where's my chainsaw? And he looks at me and he goes, son, you just coming off of drugs. You don't get no chainsaw. <laughs> and so he said, there's a pile of brush over there. He says, go move that pile of brush over here. And so that's what I did. I had the brush ministry. And then when, when the weather warmed up, I discovered there was an indoor manifestation of the brush ministry. And so for seven years, Sherry and I cleaned the toilets at the church. And that was our ministry. We cleaned the church and, uh, and I would bend down before the throne and I would pray and tell God, you know, I think there's a deacon or an elder that needs this ministry more than I do. And I'm more than willing to get out of the way and do whatever you want. So well, I think that's a that's a cool way to look at ministry work, too, because it's not necessarily about being on a, on a stage somewhere in a church or, you know, raising a, a bunch of money necessarily, although that is those are components of it. But just serving God in any way you can is a ministry. And I think we are. So I thank you for, for a reminder on that. I think that's, that's, a, that's an important reminder. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we make it way too complicated. Yeah. I mean, God is the God of relationship. And, uh, and that's the first essence of what, you know, creation is about. I mean, the earth is our home. I mean, he created that for us to have a home. And, uh, and you know, the first thing that he did was create the family. And so in his desire always, his motive is always love, but his desire is for us to choose him and to have a relationship with him. And so as we have relationships with people, then we are able to influence people. And a lot of people, you know, 
evangelism, uh, which is a little more theological topic, evangelism is not a program or a set of scriptures that we use to try to convince people. Uh, evangelism when, in our discipleship, basically Jesus, the Bible says that he chose 12 people to be with him. And so the greatest tool that we have in America is, well, number one, the number one way people come to Jesus in America is exactly the way Sherry did. And that is somebody invites somebody to come to church, like over 90% of people that receive Jesus. It's because somebody invited them to a church service or an event where the gospel was presented. Number one, hands down. But the relationship aspect of discipleship is something that we've lost. It's not a Bible study. Jesus wasn't walking around with a scroll of Matthew because Matthew was sitting there. He was with them and being with them. Then he imparted life to them and was able to teach them by using concepts, parables, object lessons. Look at those birds. You know, God takes care of them. He's going to take care of you. I mean, just those simple things. And so many times when we're with people, uh, we get so intense on telling them what we know about the Lord that we forget to just be with them and to do life with them. And uh, in doing that, then, you know, the Bible says that when we are asked to give, you know, what the, what means the hope that lies within us, then we're to give an answer. And I think that more of us should be doing that instead of, you know, one of my friends said, Jimmy, don't be an ought to preacher. And what that means is don't be running around telling people what they ought to do because people know what they ought to do. It's give them the love necessary that creates a safe space so they can actually respond and, and see Jesus and make a decision. So, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, yeah. that's kind of a quick oh, shotgun approach to our story. No, I, I, I love that story. Um, and I, I want to, um, I want you to get into talking about how you, how you found your daughter. Uh, but before we move on to that though, just what, what kind of encouragement do you have for, for married people and married couples? Because uh, <laughs> well, Okay. Yeah. Just cause you've been through a lot and you've seen a lot in right. your relationship with Sherry, but you've overcome that. And you, but you had God in the middle there to help. Right. Well, the first thing that I tell people is, Marriage is not hard. And the reason that I tell them that is because you can't find that in the Bible. Yeah, we were created for relationships with each other. But the moment that we think something is hard or we believe something even more powerfully, we believe something is hard, it's hard. And so dispel that myth that marriage is actually hard. It's really the greatest, most rewarding thing that we can do with our lives is to have a loving, to be engaged in a loving relationship. Number two, I would tell them that there is no plan B. Sherry and I, we went from total dysfunction, violent abuse, all of these things. And all of a sudden Jesus came into our lives. Well, 
as long as we hold on to the option of, well, if this doesn't work, then I can just get a divorce. And by the way, just in that caveat, divorce is a legitimate law of God written in the Bible for our protection, period. So I am not saying this, that when a marriage is bad, that you should stay in the abuse, you should stay in the relationship. I'm not saying that at all. But if we have doubt and unbelief in our life, the Bible tells us that we're going to be unstable in everything that we do. And so one of the first things that Sherry and I had to do is, number one, we had to remove the use of the D word from our life. So the D word being divorce, we were not going to use that as a weapon against each other. And number two, we have this confession that we make with each other and we would make it in times that were difficult. And that confession is we would look at each other, find a moment of sanity. I call it the eye in the hurricane. And we would say, there is no plan B. It's me and you all the way. And that's the only option in our mind, which means we're going to each be teachable. We're going to each be pliable. We're going to get the help that we need, whatever it is, wherever it comes from, to do whatever is necessary to fulfill the vows that we vowed to each other that night almost 46 years ago. And to this day, we still continue to stand to that confession that we're going to finish what we started with each other and we're going to make the necessary changes that we have to make and to do those things. So as a man, for me, that means I need to, to deal with my pride and deal with my ego. And really, you know, a lot of things in, and I tell this to people too, is that there's the, the word leader in the King James version of the Bible, new King James version of the Bible in the New Testament is never used, but yet we're told, and I understand this concept, yet we're told that we are to lead our wives, lead our home. Well, the definition of leadership is one who has followers. And as a husband, if you're trying to, to lead your wife, it's like herding cats. Because that concept of her being your follower and you being the big macho guy with all the answers is not in the Bible. What the Bible refers to in our relationships is something that's by far different. It's called headship. And 1 Corinthians, it's either 1 or 2 Corinthians 11, 3 talks about that. And it talks about it in this order. It says, for, for God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of the woman. The difference between headship and leadership is that headship is about following. It's not about leading or having followers. So my responsibility as a husband is not to lead my wife. My responsibility as a husband is to follow Jesus. And as I follow Jesus, I create a platform for my wife to also follow Jesus and in that following, then we get to together as God intended in Genesis 2.24, where he said, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. 
That word joined there is the word that we would use adhesive with. Now I have an old guitar uh, right here, actually. Listeners cannot see this, but he's actually going to get a guitar. Well, I'll tell the story. So I have this guitar yeah. that my dad got me when I was 12 years old. And uh, he actually traded a car for this guitar and an amplifier so I could have a guitar. And uh, at age 13, I dropped it and I broke the headstock off of this guitar, broke it off. And my dad took me to the garage. I figured he'd kill me, you know, took me to the garage, got some C clamps and Elmer's glue and glued it together. And so for the last 50 plus years, this guitar is held together by Elmer's glue. So when the Bible says that we are to be, you know, to leave our father and mother and be joined to our wives, it's like taking two pieces of glue, two pieces of wood, putting glue on them and adhering them together. They will stay together, you know, as long as whatever, but if we try to take them apart, they'll come apart, but they won't come apart like they went together because there'll be fragments of this one, this piece on that one, fragments of that piece on this one. And when we go out and try to put these things someplace else, they don't fit. But when we bring them back together, they fit perfectly. And so, you know, the whole concept of us being, you know, and why I was quoting that scripture, I got off on that little adhesive tangent, is that fi the finality of Genesis 2.24, it says, and they shall become one. Jesus reiterated that in the New, in, or Paul did in the New Testament, saying there's neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, in Christ, all are husband or male or female, all are one in Christ. So when we come to Jesus and we're married, God relates to us differently. You know, Proverbs tells us that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So there's this extra favor. So together, we then are, you know, we then are to be a one unit. And, you know, a lot of people get off on the tangent of submission, you know, but the wife needs to submit to her husband. Yeah, but the prerequisite of that found in Ephesians chapter 5, that's verse 22, is verse 21. And Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting yourselves to one another in the reverence, in the reverent fear of God. And so the prerequisite of a wife submitting to her husband is, are we submitted together? Are we submitted to each other? And as those commitments of submission and trust and love and all those things come together, that, you know, I've, inter I've interviewed thousands of married couples and I've asked them this question, how many times in your relationship has your wife had to submit to you as your, as her husband without her agreement? And the, I mean, the overwhelming answer is never. And the reason is if we're being the leader or the man of God that we're supposed to be, and we're following Jesus, then she, she can follow us and we can create that platform together where we can make those decisions in the, 46 years that Sherry and I've been married, there's been one time when I, after, after two years of doing everything that I could to try to get her to see a decision that we need to make. It was a big life decision. 
she she finally said, okay, I'm going to submit to you. And likewise, I mean, when I started uh, my music ministry 22 years ago, uh, and I had the opportunity to do my first album, I didn't have the money. And uh, so I was going to sell my Harley. And I took it to the dealership and told him I wanted to consign it. And I came home and was out in the garage cleaning it up. And she came out and she said, what are you doing? As I'm cleaning up my Harley, I'm going to take it to the dealership and sell it. And she said, well, if you do that, you're going to spend that money on marriage counseling because she wanted me to have that motorcycle. And I, all I could do was say, I don't have the faith to make this come to pass, but she does. So rather than me have to be big macho man, I'm just going to agree with her faith. And about two days later, a check came in the mail that covered all the expenses of those things. But it wasn't, you know, it's not that I have to have all the answers. I'm the big leader, dude. I got to know everything and be the, you know, the spiritual head of the household. Now, this is our house. This isn't my house. This is our house. And so we have to find ways to be as one and work together with each other. And, and you know, so many people, and I understand the concept of leadership in the home. And I do know that there are times when a man needs to stand up and do those kinds of things. But for the most part, it's mutually submitting to each other that creates that platform of trust and peace and love and all of those things so that we're capable of doing life together. Because if you want to make somebody miserable, just start bossing them around all the time. You know, what do you like? Yeah, because I, I do think that's where marriages today tend to especially, you know, Christian marriages have an, a problem because I, there's a, a friend of mine that I was having this conversation with and, and he was struggling with this idea of how to reconcile. I can't get my wife to submit to, to, you know, and I'm like, uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what the scripture <laughs> says, but I'm actually, I'm, I can't wait to, to list, get this episode out so I can list. Well, you know, I, I had, a, I had a deal one time where Sherry wasn't submitting to me and uh, that was when I thought I had to be the big man of the house and, and lead everybody around, you know. And so I did a Bible study and got all those submission scriptures out. And I'm just getting ready to go talk to her, man. I'm going to let her have it. I got my gospel gun is loaded, man. I'm going <laughs> to shoot her down. And all of a sudden, I hear the Lord speak to me in my heart. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go tell Sherry all these scriptures because she needs to submit. And he said, you know what? I didn't write a one of those to you. I wrote those to her mm-hmm. and her submission to you is a faith submission of faith. It's faith. You know, it's her act of faith in trusting me. And it, so I had to say, okay, you know, I can't take this out of context. And it really wasn't written to me uh, to a man in any sense of the form, because he, you know, specifically says, wives, you know, not husbands, you know, Lord this over your wife. And it becomes really, I mean, if our relationships are based on the reality of, of God's nature and character, both in, in himself and the Holy Spirit and in Jesus, his motive and everything that he does is love. Yep. The Bible tells us that, you know, this is my, this is my only original quote I've ever come up with. Uh, love is the indefensible strategy of heaven. Love is a strategy. It's the motive that God uses in creation. 
it's the motive that Jesus, it's the motive of the gospel. And so, and God even defines himself as love. And so, and the first thing that marriage is supposed to be based on is love. And the basis of the definition of love in the New Testament is primarily value. So how do I value my commitment, my vows, my relationship with my wife? And then how do I express that? And that creates this platform of trust. And one of the things that Sherry and I went through was I had completely violated her trust in every area. And uh, when we got back together, she still had all the, all the feelings and the emotions of, you know, like I do things like I'd say, okay, I'm going to go get a pack of cigarettes. I'd come back a month later. Um, you know, just casual things, you know, I just go to the store and be gone for a month. And so all of that, all those issues carried over into our relationship afterwards. And I had to go through, you know, this was before the days of cell phones. I had to go through all of these things in order to rebuild this trust. And, you know, I mean, that was not an easy thing to do. You know, I mean, if I had, if I was late from work, I'd have to find a pay phone and I'd have to call her and, you know, all of these things. And one night I had a, I had this, I had an opportunity to play a date on a Friday night after work. We didn't have a phone. So I called her mother and her, I told her mom who lived next door to us at the time, um, you know, would you go tell Sherry that I'm not going to be home? Cause I have this opportunity to make some money and she didn't tell her. And so when I got home at four in the morning, I had a very destroyed wife, but in, in the meantime of that, she had prayed and she said, Lord, how can I ever trust him again? And the Lord spoke to her and said, when he falls head over heels in love with me, you won't be able to help but trust him. And the essence of our relationships, you know, our first priority as men is to follow Jesus and in following Jesus and acting accordingly, you know, demonstrating the fruit of the spirit in our relationship, in our home, all these other things just kind of all automatically start taking care of themselves. Yeah. And I think that's the important piece is it's that fruit that Jesus produces in your life and the accountability that men have to take for our actions. And that's, you know, that's how I was able to rebuild my trust with my wife, Amy, after the things that I did was, it wasn't just, I wasn't just talking a good game, but it was actually following through and she could see the change in heart. Right. And that's, you know, that's the big thing. Yeah. So, you know, so you have an incredible story around, around your marriage and, and turning that around. And then, oh, by the way, in the middle of it, you also have another amazing story about how you found a daughter <laughs> along the way. Yeah, uh, my stories are all the same. Uh, I like really jack stuff up <laughs> and, uh, and Jesus helps me. Yeah. Yeah. So the short version of that we have a book on that too called uh, the little girl wins that jessica my daughter and i wrote together but the short story on that is before i met sherry you know 1971 i was 17 i'd already told you about my family life completely undisciplined totally out of control um quit school the day after i turned 16 um and uh, was doing everything that I could to destroy everybody around me. And, uh, and 
you know, I was partying with this girl off and on. And one night she comes to me and says, I'm pregnant. And uh, my, you know, my response to that was, what's that got to do with me? And how do you know kind of things? And that was the end of the conversation. So uh, that she went her way. I went my way. Um, she already had a, a little boy that, you know, and so anyway, so Sherry and I met and, and our first marriage and Sherry asked me one time, she said, well, you're not going to have some kids showing up or something, are you? And I'm like, maybe, I don't know, maybe. And, uh, so we came to Jesus in 76, um, and started rebuilding our lives in the mid eighties. I was at a restaurant in our hometown of Liberty, Missouri. And uh, I saw this girl that I had dated's dad and he had this little teenage girl with him. And I saw her across the room. She didn't, you know, he didn't see me cause he knew me. And, um, and I knew immediately that she was my daughter. And so I, went to the nearest Faye phone I could find and called Sherry and said, you know, I saw this little girl today and she's my daughter. And Sherry said, well, we need to, we need to ask the Lord what to do. And so we prayed earnestly. And the answer that we got from the Lord was wait. And so we waited in the, and, and so that was like, you know, mid eighties, something like that. So fast forward 2009, I'm preaching in a large church in St. Louis, Missouri. That's a, by the way, that's a long wait from the 80s to 2009. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Wow. And uh, I'm preaching in this service. I get the band there. My son's Jason there. We're telling his story. Tremendous service. But there's a girl in the audience and we don't know her and she doesn't know us. It's on Father's Day. And uh, she's so impressed, she starts blowing up her big sister's phone who lives on the East Coast. Well, she gets out of church and calls her big sister. And her big she's telling her all about the music and the stories and the response and all these things. And her big sister says, well, tell me this guy's name. Now, this again, this is on Father's Day. And she tells her sister my name and the phone drops. Hmm. And when she picks it up, she asks her little sister, she says, do you know who this man is to me? And she said, no, she's this preacher guy from Kansas city. And she said, well, he's my dad. And so that father's day started a process of Jessica's little sister uh, for the next year and a half appealing to their mother to reach out to me and connect Jessica and myself. So I had no idea any of that was going on, but on February 13th, I was in Christiana, Pennsylvania. I was speaking there. I was doing a marriage seminar and then three Sunday morning services. I had spoke, I was getting ready to speak for the ninth time that weekend. And uh, I'm in the green room, drinking a cup of coffee, getting ready to walk out and preach. And I hear this voice in my heart and the voice says, I'm about to change your life. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe I'll quit traveling. Maybe I'll get a real job, you know, whatever. And uh, 
I had no idea. And there, you know, we never, we always fall short, you know, because the Bible is very clear in telling us that, you know, eyes have not seen, ears not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And so I preached this service. We got in the car, started to the airport at Philadelphia, and I get an email from Jessica's mother. And the email says, it's overdue that you should meet your daughter and your grandsons. And so so I never factored any of that aspect of it in as far as grandsons was concerned. And she said, you can find her on Facebook. So I found, I sent a response to her mother and said, when and where, and um, sent Jessica Facebook's friends request. And for the next three weeks, she uh, panicked, not knowing why or what or what I wanted or why now, any of those questions. And I went into what I can only describe as the deepest grief that I've ever experienced because the reality of my actions set in that I had abandoned a child. And uh, I grieved deeply uh, through that time. My prayer life was uh, groaning rather than any words. I had three words that I could get out of my mouth concerning this issue in my life, which was, oh God, Jessica. And that was the only prayer that I could pray because I had never thought it conceivable that I could do something as hideous as I had done uh, to my daughter. So for three weeks that she was silent and um, in uh, mid-March, March, well, first couple of weeks of March, I was in Daytona at Bike Week doing concerts at Bike Week. And uh, we just finished on, uh, on March uh, seventh. And, um, we're sitting eating dinner with the band and the crew. And I get an email from Jessica and the email says, basically it says, she said, you know, I dealt with my emotions a long time ago concerning you. And I put them in a little box in my heart and knew that you would never be there to see me dance. Cause she was a dancer when she was little to watch me graduate or to walk me down the aisle at my wedding. But now that you're here, the little girl in me or the woman, the little girl in me wants to run to you with my arms open, but the woman in me needs to know where you've been, you know, why now? And so I, t- I was, we were staying at this old biker's house that uh, named Drifter and he had no furniture and no beds. We had to buy our mattresses, but all I had was my phone and I took the next five hours to write a response to her email and to answer her question. And uh, when I did, when I concluded my email, I wanted to refer to the little girl that she had mentioned that was ready to run into my arms. And so I, I closed my email by saying, Jessica, I hope that the little girl wins. And so from that point, we started just communicating to each other. It's like a full-time job um, for the next seven days. And uh, it was all text and emails, no, no voice conversations, no phone calls, no anything. And during that first week, I told her, I said, you know, we're on the East Coast. She lives on the East Coast. And if you want to meet my wife and I, just name the place and we'll be there. And so I was preaching in Augusta, Georgia the next Sunday. And, and she sent me an email and said, okay, on Monday, March 14th, 2011, 
Charlottesville, Virginia. My husband, Leroy, is working two hours south of the house, and we'll meet there and have dinner. And so we went to uh, to meet and have dinner. It was uh, one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. I When I saw her, it was like looking in the mirror, and, um, and it was just such an incredible event. She would tell you that uh, as she was standing waiting to meet us, that she looked in her heart and she wanted to, she wanted me to feel the pain that she had felt in her life because of my absence. And we're rightfully so. And uh, she wanted to express her anger, her, she wanted vengeance. She wanted to express her abandonment and all of those issues. And while she was standing there, she says she looked in her heart and they were gone. And the Lord spoke to her and said, you can't have those things, but you can have your dad. And so that started the beginning of a, of a beautiful relationship that really, when the Lord said, I'm going to change your life, I had no idea it would be so dramatic because my firstborn was no longer my firstborn. Uh, and it just radically transformed. You know, I had two grandchildren up to that point which very quickly grew to nine. And uh, my, my biggest concern about meeting her was, how am I going to pay for Christmas presents? So they have four boys. And my daughter, Amanda, uh, married a guy with three kids. She has two. And, and so, you know, we very rapidly expanded the grandkid base. But, but it, it began something, you know, that I can only say that in, in our relationships, God goes to very, very much great detail. Through that experience, I understood then why all the genealogies are in the Bible. God is interested in every seed. Uh, he's willing to track those seeds to the just to the biggest degree that would bore everybody that's ever tried to read Matthew chapter one. Um, and I also, in my religious thinking, I thought that the blessings of God started on my life the day that I received him forward. And, and that's what I assumed, you know, okay, this is where they start here. You know, that's when I accepted him, but he not being bound by time and being, you know, of his nature, which is redeeming is his nature. He reached back into my past to a time where I didn't serve him, acknowledge him or regard him in any way and redeemed it. And that was the biggest religious uh, time, you know, built religious bomb that exploded in my world to think that he was that powerful, that understanding, that redeeming, that he would redeem that part of my past. And uh, it really changed, you know, changed the shape, the, the shape and trajectory of our family. I'll say one more thing and then I'll let you ask questions or whatever. But the thing that has been amazing in the last 11 years since we've been sharing that story publicly uh, is the amount of people that have a similar story. Uh, we were just last week in Fort Smith, Arkansas, at a church there. And <coughs> we, yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. That gives Ben something to do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we uh 
I, I would say in that church, there was maybe, I don't know, it was over a thousand. And out of that thousand, 30 people probably took the time to come up and try to share some of their story of their heartbreak and the dysfunction and the separation in their families. And the thing that we discovered that keeps it separate is our fear. And, and likewise, there, you know, a lot of these stories aren't like ours where they, they, you know, don't go that way. There's no redemption there. And to that, I reference, you know, for people that that happens to is that, you know, God is the God, the Bible tells us, who places the orphans in families. And he won't let us do without if we're willing to accept his provision for that. So it might not be a biological mom or dad, but there are people and, and more, you know, adult Christians need to step up into that role to be able to uh, walk with, in other words, disciple people, bring people in and do life with them that need fathers and mothers, that need brothers and sisters. And, and you know, we're, we've kind of been in a trend in the church where if you're not young and hip, we just kind of throw you away. And really, we're not going to survive in that model. We need, we need the, zeal, the zeal and enthusiasm of youth coupled with the wisdom and experience of age. And we need those things to be joined together. That makes us the most powerful force in our culture, if we can pull that off. And yeah, so, sure. so anyway, that's, well, that's, that's that story. No, I, and I love that story. And, and, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, and I've had these conversations about generational sin and generational brokenness that's handed down from parents down to kids and just keeps going on. And, you know, it's been that way in my family that, you know, my grandparents handed down their brokenness to, to my parents and, and my parents handed it down to me and my brothers and sisters. And I'm <laughs> just, I'm, I think, I, I think I might be, but in not, my family is not outside of myself. Nobody has a relationship with God at all. So uh, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that perhaps my redemption will help will help break some of that. It will. You know, the one thing that we omit to see in Mark chapter four in the parable of the sower is the, first of all, the, the sower was the worst farmer ever. I mean, that dude had no sense of anything other you know, he's throwing stuff on the rocks and the bushes and the road. He's throwing his stuff everywhere. Uh, We have been programmed religiously to really only look at the result. And we look at, okay, we want 30, 60, 100 full return on, on everything that we do. But if you look in detail at that passage of scripture, what you'll find is every seed did something. Whatever, wherever it was, whatever it did. Yeah, I mean, where if it's in the rocks, it still did some. I mean, you walk down the sidewalk, you can see grass growing out of the crack of the sidewalk, you know. I had a tree fall one time and one of my friends came over to help me cut it up. And on the second street points up at the gutter on the second story of my house. And there's a, there's a stock of corn growing out of it, (laughs) you know, I mean, this stuff is powerful. And so, yeah, your life will make a difference. It's just, sometimes we want to control the process. You know, we don't want to let those things, you know, evolve as they would evolve naturally in our relationships. And it, it does take time to do that. You know, the one thing I would say about the whole generational curses thing is that we have to be careful with that because first of all, Jesus became a curse for us. 
that stops at the bloodline. And, and secondly, uh, you know, I'm reminded of a song by Mike and the Mechanics called The Living Years. Man. Sorry about that. My phone never goes off and I got it off, but I don't know how to shut it off on my computer. Um, so, um, so anyway, Ben's got a lot to do now. Yeah, he does. <clears throat> but, um, I know that, uh, I don't want to keep it too much longer. So before we go, I do want to talk about the, um, the, the ministry outreach you have in, in prisons. Cause that's, okay. I, I just found that very interesting and encouraging. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'd love to know how, how did, the, how did that come about? As well, part of your uh, journey. Very reluctantly, you know, I tell I tell people that if you've seen gosh. <clears throat> you're Sorry. a popular man tonight. Well, I it was I don't know uh, why that I, I don't know how to shut that off. If I knew how to shut that off, I would shut that off. Um, so back to the prison ministry thing. Well, first of all, uh, I was very reluctantly. And so I tell people, you know, if you've ever seen that painting of the illustration called Footprints, where there's two sets of footprints and then there's one and the guy says, why was there just one? And the Lord says, well, that was where I was carrying you. Well, my picture of that is there's one set of footprints and two ruts where the Lord's just dragging me into his will. And so reluctantly, uh, I had an opportunity, Sherry and I did back in the in the 80s to start going to uh, the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary to the camp there on Thanksgiving Day and uh, for, for four days and start doing a Thanksgiving, what they call a revival. And so that got us started. But the main motivation is that Jesus commanded us to go. And uh, he said, you know, when I was a prisoner, you came and visited me. And, um, and so, you know, what we've discovered in that is that there, you know, these are people and, you know, there's 2.4 million people incarcerated in America, making that population equal to the size of Houston, Texas. 97% of those people are going to be released at, back into our communities. 76% of them are going to reoffend and be back in prison in less than five years. So what we offer prisoners or inmates is we offer them uh, what's called rehabilitation. So that means that 24% are going to actually succeed at that. Not a very good ratio. What we try to do is we try to take the, we try to take the power of transformation to the hearts of the individual, to the root, not to the symptom, but to the root of the problem, which are the beliefs of their heart and our hearts that call, you know, it's like, why, you know, why do you sin? Well, you sin because you want to, you know, you sin because you like it. You sin because you believe that that is going to solve a problem in your life. You have a you have a wrong belief. And until that belief is changed, you're going to keep believing that. And no matter how much willpower you exert, at some point, that willpower is going to be weakened until your the beliefs of your heart are changed. Everything that has to do with faith is not something that happens intellectually. It happens in our hearts. That's why the Bible tells us that we are to believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 10. And so we try to take that message to, to inmates. And so we do, we use music to open the door to the heart because music is, 
you know, it's a powerful tool. It's been used by all the great, uh, you know, evangelists of all time. Music is a tool that opens the heart of people. And then secondly, we just started. So we use that. We do large scale. Like last week, we did one um, in central Kansas. We had 950 inmates on the yard at the same time, which is unheard of. And, uh, and we, you know, played music and I shared the story about my old guitar, you know, how you can take this thing and beat, beat it to death and try to cover it up and make it look nice and pretty. But until you put it in the hands of the master, nothing's going to happen. And God will take our brokenness and do that. But we also started a pioneer to thing last year, which we're continuing this year, where we take copies of our book, like granny paid for our divorce and we do an in-prison book signing. And what that means is that we take enough of these so that everyone that wants one gets one. We sit down, sign these books and give them to them. Uh, and that's our discipleship process. So we can't be there with them, but we can give them our story. We can give them a little bit of that. So we started doing that. We, uh, we did one in May. Uh, we did one last week. We'll do one in July and in August, and they're large-scale events, like the one we're doing in August. We'll have a 1,000 people there. Uh, we have a team that's coming in to, to grill pulled pork and feed them, feed every inmate in prison. And, awesome. uh, and so it's just part of those things, you know, we find, you know, I tell people it's like Johnny Cash uh, went to prison, did some concerts. Uh, you know, his landmark album, Live at Folsom Prison, this was, you know, I had that in 1968 when it first came out. But he did another one at San Quentin nobody knows about, or very few people know about. And sitting in the audience was an inmate. And that inmate became one of the most prolific songwriters in the world. That inmate's name is Merle Haggard. And he reshaped country music um, all because of what happened in prison in that moment. And so we can, you know, the main motivation for us as ministry is, is that we want to be involved in doing things, doing ministry things where nobody can pay us because we're vocational. We've been doing this for, I don't know, 27 years or whatever, full time. But we want to be involved in things that nobody can pay us to do because it's part of who we are as individuals. And this is part of that thing. So, and we believe, you know, that we can make a, a real difference in the lives of people and the inmates are, you know, they're enthusiastic. Uh, they want, you know, they're on their best behavior when we're there because they know that if they act up, they're not going to allow things like this to happen anymore. And so we've been going since the eighties and we'll continue to do that. Have you uh, have you ever heard from from a any former inmate who you had an impact on their life that reached out to you to say, "Hey, remember yeah. me?" Yeah, sure enough. Yeah, we've had one guy that when we first started at Leavenworth, he uh, well, a guy that we met at Leavenworth uh, while he was incarcerated, he's a friend of ours. He uh, was incarcerated because he worked for Delta Airlines and had a drug smuggling operation internationally for Delta. He was a baggage handler and uh, he got arrested and sentenced to Leavenworth. We met him there. He came to Jesus while he was in Leavenworth. He went to Bible school while he was in Leavenworth. 
he got out of Bible school. He went to work for Prison Fellowship as uh, the regional director here in the Midwest. He took a, a position at the prison that we were at last week in Ellsworth, Kansas, as the chaplain. He pioneered a program with the warden and the cooperation of the Department of Corrections of the state of Kansas that allowed them to raise money to build a church building inside the walls of the prison there. And uh, the department, the head of the Department of Corrections recently said that the model that they created in that prison is the model that they want to implement in the entire state. I was there last year on the yard standing with the warden and he turned and pointed to the Spiritual Life Center and said, everything in this prison starts and ends there. And so, you know, that's that's one great story. We've seen guys come out of prison and become pastors. Um, I've worked with some great ex-offenders in some of our programs. And uh, there's just a whole lot of guys in there that that need to be in there. There's a whole lot of guys in there that needed to be in there, but don't anymore that can go back out into society. And the only way that that's going to happen with anything, it's not just with inmates. The only way that we're going to stop destroying ourselves is by believing the truth in our heart. And it's not a mental exercise. It's not an exercise of willpower, which I'm all for all of those things. They help us to get to that place, to renew our minds to the truth so that we can believe in our heart. But once we believe in our heart, transformation is instantaneous and effortless. It happens that quick and uh, we can resist that. We can go against it. We can deny it. We can do whatever, but that power that takes place from the new birth, from the baptism of the Holy spirit, from all of those things happens that quick. And, uh, and so that's our focus. We want to try to do everything that we can to influence people to believe in their heart on Jesus and believe the truth that God's word promises them of the life that they can live. Yeah. I love that. And the transformation is, it is, it can be just like that. Just a yep. snap of the fingers. It's yeah. It's you know, people say, you know, well, you know, here's, here's a 12 step program. Are you against the 12 prep program? It's like, I don't care how many steps you have to take. You know, I don't care if it's one, I don't care if it's 50, I don't care if it's 5,000, just keep taking steps. Just keep going. You know, yeah. if you've got a problem or an addiction, it's like the only person that's counting your failures is you. So get up, renew your mind, put on the old, put on the new man, put off the old man and watch, you know, but if it takes you know, like with me, it's like I was, bam, I was, I was delivered that fast. And, uh, you know, but it ain't that way with everybody. And it doesn't matter if it's one step or nine, nine, who cares? Just get taking them. Well, and, and God will bless the steps that you do take. Yeah. If you, if you I mean, put your faith in him. It's not that complicated, but it didn't, you know, I'm not saying it's without pain and grief, but yeah, it still is possible. And that's, that's the thing that we have to see. And our faith is powerful and, you know, it's just, you know, we go on forever, but yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you taking some time to share your journey um, with me. 
uh, it's, uh, like I said, I've heard you a couple of times already, but just getting a chance to listen to you, your story again is, is this brings great encouragement, especially for my marriage. And I know for others out there who for marriages out there too. So um, I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks guys. Yeah. And uh, I think we'll, Ben will clear us. Thanks again to Jimmy for coming on and, and sharing his amazing story. He is such a fun interview. Uh, and if you get a chance, go, I'll put the link to his website in the show notes, jimmybratcher.com. Go check it out. Go check out his music, which is actually pretty good. Um, I need to, I know he's got a couple of shows coming up at knuckleheads in Kansas city that I need to go check out. And he might be coming to a church or an area near you. And I encourage you to find out where he's going to be and, um, and give him a follow. He is, uh, he's awesome. And just so encouraging. So, so thanks again to Jimmy. Uh, for sharing that great testimony. Uh, coming up over the next couple of weeks, we got two really, um, really interesting shows. Uh, the first one next week, we're going to have Patrick Chester on, and and he talks about his addiction to sports gambling and how he was able to overcome that. And and um, it's it's a really interesting story uh, that Patrick shares and has some great details on uh, on what drove his gambling addiction and, and how he's able to move past it. And then two weeks from today, we've got Damon Covert. Damon is a, is a gentleman that I met. Uh, he heard me on a podcast and reached out and we've been chatting uh, for a few months now. And he formed Principle Eight Ministries, which is a, a music ministry, but also uh, using testimonies, powerful testimonies. And, and Damon we'll come on the show and talk about his addiction to pornography, which obviously I take a great interest in since that's what led me to this podcast. And he talks about what it did to his life, uh, how he overcame that addiction through the power of God. And, and then talks about how God is using them today. Such an encouraging conversation. I'm excited to share that with one with you in a couple of weeks. And uh, just want to say, Hey, everybody, thanks again for tuning in today. Uh, for this episode. Appreciate you coming along on this journey and hope you come back next week. And remember, Jesus did not come to hang out with the saints and the righteous. Now he came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you and just like me. Have a great week, everybody.